Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. Thank you for joining us once again as we stroll the battlefields of Europe. It's been a really exciting journey in the couple of months we've been doing it so far. So thank you for coming along on that journey. And thank you for the feedback you've given us. We're getting a lot of Twitter comments. We're getting a lot of messages through Facebook. It's just great to hear from people. So you can find me as Matt McLaughlin on Twitter and also uh, Living History on Facebook. So jump on there, track us down. And say hi. If you've got suggestions, a couple of the episodes we've done have been based on suggestions from people who've listened to previous episodes and wanted to hear more. So if you have suggestions for where we should go, send those in as well. Uh, I should introduce, of course, the person you're all here to see, (laughs) all here to hear from. Uh, We've had lots of great feedback about this guy. He is a, uh, I I have to say, Pete, you are a budding star of the podcast world. So a great discovery. Pete Smith, welcome back. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Uh, Yeah, I like that. Yep, keep going. (laughs) Yeah, I always enjoy kicking these off, mate, with uh, making you feel a little bit embarrassed. It uh, it, uh, sets the tone well for the rest of the episode. How is everything in France going, mate? I mean, you're in the middle of a cold winter, in the middle of a COVID lockdown. How is everything going? Well, it's quiet, uh, which is a good thing. It means we can uh, wander the battlefields uh, that we can reach uh, uh, without anybody being there at all. But that's about the only thing I can I can say. Other than that, uh, it's a bit like Groundhog Day over and over again. Well, hopefully the virtual walks we get for the battlefields are uh, not enough to replace actually getting out there and walking the ground. But uh, hopefully for you, Pete, and for also everyone listening, hopefully it's a, a, a good way to pass the time and a good way to uh, get us inspired when we can get back over there again. And I think today is one that will inspire a lot of people because we are heading back. We're still in France, but we're doing World War II again. And this time D-Day. I mean, the iconic battle, the the one that everyone thinks of when they think of France. Tell us a little bit about quite a specific action we're following today on D-Day, Pete. 
Yeah, well, this is this is going to be a very specific action just to do with Force 7 Commando. Uh, that's a Royal Marine Commando, so obviously something that I'm uh, interested in, being an ex-Royal Marine. Um, and we're going to be talking about what they did uh, on the 6th and the 7th and just the, the dawn of, of the 8th um, uh, on uh, on that very, very famous day when we started the retaking of, of Europe. So it's, it's I mean, an enormous undertaking. It, it, I'm not even going to attempt to try and do it in, in this podcast because we'll be covering little other areas as the podcast goes along but the 6th of June 1944 that famous day when uh, in the the dawn the ships came over the horizon for those that know nothing about it I would highly recommend watching the film The Longest Day Uh, it's an old film now black and white because they're going to use a lot of original footage as well but it's just a really good overview of the story uh, of what happened uh, on that uh, on that famous 6th of June in 1944 the start of the retaking of Europe. I think it's a good point, Pete, that, um, I mean, there's a little bit of assumed knowledge here. We're not going to sit here and recount the entire story of D-Day. I think people either know it well enough or can find out pretty easily. But let's just, let's talk about the beaches because that's important. Let's talk about the five landing beaches. Um, So obviously Brits and Americans and Canadians and French and a whole mix of allied support in ships and planes. Let's just talk about the five beaches and then that will lead us neatly into uh, the, the area we're talking about today. Well, I think we'll just talk about the landscape uh, before we descri- describe the individual areas, uh, because it, it alters to such an extent. We've got bluffs, which are kind of sand dunes that rise slowly in some areas. We have pebbly beaches in other areas. We have uh, walls because they're behind sea walls, so we have towns behind uh, sea walls, and we have high cliffs. So it's a whole range of different types of, of beaches that we have to uh, attempt to land on. What we've done, we'd split them down into um, areas. Uh, areas and those areas um, so I'm, are running from we're looking out to sea and this is always a difficulty so this we're looking out to sea uh, so we're actually looking north from the, from the south um, and on our right hand side we first of all have Sword Beach then Juno Beach then Gold Beach then Omaha, Omaha and Utah uh, at, at the end. So whose beaches are they? Well, just very broadly speaking, Sword is a British beach, Juno is a Canadian beach, Gold is a British beach, Omaha is American, and Utah is American as well. But there's massive over- overlapping, and we have things like uh, the Free French Forces, we have Norwegians, we have, uh, as Matt just said, we have almost almost all of occupied Europe is going to supply units that will uh, be involved in the landing. So, Pete, it was a very broad front. There were a lot of troops involved, but we're looking at a very small sector of the front today. Just tell us which area of the landing beaches we're concentrating on. So we're going to be on Gold Beach, um, but the area that the commando, that 4-7 commando is going to attempt uh, to take is actually sits on a little dip in the cliffs in between Gold Beach and Omaha Beach. Now, for anybody that's done any, any history on the on the uh, the landings on the, uh, on the 6th of June, then they'll know that the the Omaha Beach landings, American landings, didn't go too well. So we are going to sit close to that landing um, uh, in between that and the British landing on Gold Beach. So it's right in the middle. But to get there, because these are high cliffs that link those two beaches, um, we're going to be landing on Gold on the flatter areas and then working our way behind the German units. In fact, they were tasked not to engage the units to try and get right behind behind the town and head to a, a little place. It's called Port Embassan, and that's where we're going to be concentrating on the taking of this little a little port called Port Embassan. I was just looking at some photos of this town, Pete, and I haven't actually been to Port Embassan, but it's um, quite quite famous in that sector, and it's remarkable the geography. I was just looking at photos of it, aerial photos. 
It's incredible. Tell us a little bit about this amazing geography, the little harbour, the cliffs. It's it's really quite remarkable. Well, it's it's right in this section, which are chalk cliffs, very high chalk cliffs, um, and uh, there's a harbour. So the cliffs dip at this area, and there's a harbour there. So you've got a deep water harbour, and then you've got an inlet, so you can just go inland and, uh, and uh, ideal for fishing. And that's exactly what it was. It's a little fishing port, uh, and each side of it, you've got these high cliffs. So it's just this little gap in the cliffs where a little town grew up there. But of course, that's why it's ideal because it's a deep water port. We can get a few vessels in there um, and um, uh, it's it was important to the Germans to defend it so it's very very uh, well defended by the Germans so um, it was important that we took this port and we have a reason for taking it and this is something I was going to bring up later but I think I'll do it now it's because we are looking for a port that we can capture that we can bring a pipeline into so what's that about well Obviously, if you're invading a country and you've got nothing with you, you have to bring everything. Well, one of the things they needed to bring was petrol, was fuel for the vehicles. And they needed the port not to be able to bring in lots and lots of tankers and vessels carrying petrol, but to bring in a pipeline because they are going to literally pump petrol from Britain to France under the water through a pipeline. And this is where the first pipeline, there's another one that they're going to actually bring into Le Havre a bigger port further up the coast, but that won't be till considerably later when it's taken. This is the one that's going to be needed right on the early phases of the battle as we attempt to force the Germans out of Normandy uh, and, and then onwards into the rest of France. Uh, so so a crucial location for, for many reasons. Pete, it's the one thing I love whenever I read anything about D-Day is, I mean, the word that springs to mind is audacity. This was not just let's land on the beaches and and hopefully give the Germans a bloody nose and see what we can do. I mean, I think a big part of this story was, was our experience in the First World War and the, the desperation to not repeat that, that stalemate of trenches and, and getting, getting bogged down in France. But it's just the, the extent to which they planned and, and, and their intentions and, and the way they pulled it off, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? Well, it's, it is actually mind-boggling when you start reading into all the various things that they have to think through. And they literally have to think of every problem that could possibly happen and then come up with a, an answer to it. So just to give you an idea of, of the planning that was needed to do this, I'll use something that uh, Matt and I are very keen on uh, and, know, and, and have been lots of times, and that's the Gallipoli landings. Uh, Gallipoli landings, the planning of that, effectively three weeks. This was three years. The, the landing in Normandy, three years. And even then, it's, it's difficult. They're trying to just cover every known eventuality. And as we'll see as we tell this story, it can go wrong so quickly. Um, and then you rely on men on the ground to, to sort it out and, uh, and progress. So it's uh, uh, just unbelievable. Speaking of men on the ground, Pete, tell us about 47 Commando. Who are these people? I mean, what, what even is a commando unit? Tell us about the Marines, who these men were, and what they were tasked with on D-Day. We start off, it's Churchill again, as, as it normally is. Churchill is always involved in in some of these plannings. And he, he was very keen that uh, having been thrown out of Europe, having been thrown out of Norway, things not going particularly well, that we needed to still have a presence, that we still needed to show that we were capable of offensive actions. So uh, he basically is the is the, the guy that's going to start this off, that we needed units who could, who could land in occupied uh, France, uh, uh, Belgium, wherever in, in Europe, and cause problems to the Germans. These became known as commando units. Um, it's army commandos originally, the men from the uh, from the army, 
But eventually it, it made sense that the Royal Marines, uh, we are the guys that uh, help on board the ships. So we are uh, the infantry on board ships. We can be used uh, to come off the Royal Naval ships and form a, a, a battalion on the land to help uh, defend uh, ports or the ships on the land uh, side. We also man some of the turrets on board the ships. So we are used to working on ships and working on the ground. So it seems sensible to convert the uh, Royal Marine uh, uh, units into commando units. Of course, you can't just transfer them you have to ask for volunteers so that's what they did and and we end up with uh, with basically four commando units uh, 41 46 47 and 48 royal marine uh, commandos and they become uh, uh, the units that are going to be used for the landings on on d-day um, and they form a, a basically a brigade and uh, this is uh, a brigade that's going to be used for, for those landings um, the fourth special service brigade um, and four seven, they will all be given individual tasks. And normally, you have to say commandos and parachute and parachutists. The parachute regiment are protecting the flanks, as were the American parachutists uh, op- operating for for their sectors. Parachutists, commandos, special forces, the rangers for the Americans. They are the people that are con- that are protecting the flanks. And this is part of that. This is the flank of the British effort adjoining or abutting the American effort at, at Omaha. And that's what four seven is doing as well. It's going to be the the linchpin, the linking of the British efforts on, on the beach to, uh, to the American efforts on, on their beach, Omaha Beach. And I'm assuming the men in this unit were fairly young and fit. It, uh, it sounds like a, a, fairly, uh, a fairly demanding role to, to, to carry out in the Marines. Yeah, average age between 18 and 22. Of course, they're, they're always bolstered by older guys who uh, probably have a lot more knowledge. Um, but 18 to 22, unbelievably committed, uh, fit. I mean, their regime to uh, uh, to become a commando was fairly uh, strenuous, it included uh, training down in St. Ives in Cornwall, up in Scotland, um, all over the UK, but mainly on the coast because this is what they're basically being trained to do, and that is to land in occupied Europe. They had no idea where they were going to be used um, uh, initially because this is their initial this is four seven commandos blooding is their their landing um uh, on the the beaches of normandy uh, so uh yeah v- very keen very fit fairly young but know their job in and out uh, and uh, i suppose that the esprit de corps is the term that i would use they are very 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 uh keen to to get into action and to to succeed and to show that the all this training they've done 18 months of training can be used for something uh, sensible so you mentioned that the plan was not to take the, the village of Port of Basson head on, but to land on Gold Beach and swing around behind us. Uh, so tell us about the landing, because that's going to be obviously an essential part. Coming ashore is, is, is going to be the, the key part of the whole operation. So what we're going to do is we are going to start this tour, uh, this walk um, at on the coast, looking out to the sea and imagine what we're looking at. And we're at a place called Ansnell's. Um, and uh, very close to another area. These are quite hard to find on the map, I have to say, trying to track down the exact spots on these, because these are, these are small, little, tiny places. Uh, La Hamel is another place, and that was their original objective, was to land at La Hamel. So what time are they coming in? Well, they're aiming to hit the beach at round about 9.30. The initial landings were at 7.25. So you have to say, if they're a commando unit, why are they not coming in with the first waves? Well, the whole point is that these aren't, these do not want to be engaged during the fighting to actually to take the uh, the beachhead because they're going to pass through. They want uh, the, in fact, it's the first Hampshires uh, to punch a hole through the beachhead. They will then let them through and they will then go behind the German lines and work their way to the right. So they're coming in and on the beach and they're going to turn right and work, work their way along the uh, 
uh, along the uh, the ridges and the valleys and the roads. And it's a, it's a mix uh, to get to Port Embassan, uh, hopefully without getting any contact with the Germans, so there'll be no fighting, so they can get there intact. But it's all going to go fairly gruesomely wrong right the way from almost the start. So I have to uh, describe what they're landing in. They're landing in a landing craft assault. It carries 30-plus men, 35 men. Depends how much kit they're carrying, but let's say 30-plus, so just 35 uh, uh, men. A crew of four, and they're being dropped off eight miles of sea from motherships. And there's there's 14 of them, 14 landing craft um, full of everything that you need. So these guys have thought it through. They've got Bangalore torpedoes. They've got all the radios they need. They've got all of their... their, um, uh, their kit for basically 24, 48 hours on the ground looking after themselves without needing to get anything. Ammunition, machine guns, mortars, they're, they're all uh, with them. A Bangalore torpedo, by the way, is used for, for blowing up barbed wire or, or, or strong defences. So they're coming in with those split among the 14 landing craft. One of the landing craft is hit immediately by a direct uh, uh, shell, which takes it out completely, killing most of the men on board. And as they get closer, they begin to realise that things have not gone well with the first Hampshire's landing on the beach, and they've been forced to the left. And so effectively, where they were going to land has still not been captured, which means that they're going to be facing an enemy there immediately when they land on the beach, and that is not their job. So they have to do a left-hand turn, and in doing so, they're basically showing their flanks to all of the Germans on the on the beach. And it means that the landing craft, rather than just the front of the landing craft, you can now hit the sides of the landing craft. So all of the landing craft get hit in one way or another. The second problem they have, the landing on the Normandy beaches had been planned for it to be low tide. And that meant that all of the German obstacles that they'd placed along the beaches would be visible. And you could then go around them, land in front of them. And yes, you had a long long, uh, uh, tidal beach, so you had to cross this beach to get to any kind of defence. Uh, or protect the protection, but it meant that you got in safely. Well, because these are coming in so much later, the tide has changed, the tide is now coming in, and a lot of these beach defences have been covered up. And also the engineers, because of the German strength of defence, have not been able to destroy them. So they're still there. And some of these are as simple as a wooden pole with a mine on the end, known as a telemine, and then the boat runs into the mine. Or we have something called Belgian gates, and they are even simpler. They are a big uh, metal structure embedded in concrete, and basically it's got something that on the top of it that rips into the the uh, the bottom of the landing craft and holds them and causes them to either sink or to to roll over. In fact, by they ride up on them, and that's what starts to happen. A lot of the landing craft run into the mines. Um, it's so bad that only two of the landing craft are able to get back to the motherships. Um, and so lots of men lost all of their kit, even if they survived, which m- the majority do, um, they have lost everything. And there's, there's talk of some of the commandos arriving with no trousers or nothing because in trying to swim ashore because they were a long way out, they've had to take off everything to get any hope of getting in. So they've got no equipment to start off with. One of those that's missing is the commanding officer. He's not there as well. And so we have a problem right the way from the start. And it's going to take over two hours on the beach, basically scrounging equipment, trying to find a working radio, getting their stuff together before they can head inland. But that's exactly what they're going to do. So it's it was a hellish start. And so if we stand on the beach and look out, you have to imagine what they faced as well. Because as they came in... Hours after the original landing, there were dead men in the water, there were knocked out tanks, there, there were uh, some captured Germans milling around the beach, there were the, the beach uh, masters on the beach trying to organise people where they could go, 
And in amongst all of this, we have German shells landing because we've not yet taken all of the German uh, positions. Now, these are known as WN positions. That's what the, uh, the, they're called on all the maps. Effectively, what it means is a defensive nest, really. It's a, a defensive position. So I'll be talking about WNs uh, and the assault of, of WNs as we go on. But it's, it's basically it's, it's a defended position. Some kind it can, sometimes it can uh, include an artillery piece and sometimes it's just uh, infantry positions. So they basically have to get through uh, this, this little town, out into the open on the roads behind, and at the same time trying to gather equipment. Uh, thankfully, because uh, uh, they are so keen uh, and so fit that all of this can be done uh, quite quickly. The other thing I should say is they were terribly seasick on the way in. It, this is not a calm weather. This was not a, a brilliant day for landing. Um, as some of you may know and some may not, but this had been put off. Because the weather was so bad, it was put off a day of the landings. So the weather's still not brilliant. But this is a very small window when they know they can uh, they can get the uh, the landings going. So again, not brilliant weather, and it will cause other problems in other areas, which we'll cover in other podcasts, where tanks cannot make it ashore and they sink because they're they're designed to uh, to to actually to float. Um, and they don't, but we'll talk about those on another podcast. So very, very bad weather, terrible seasickness. So you can imagine as well as having the Germans shooting at you, having the potential of having to swim part of the way in, you're also very, very uh, uh, seasick uh, uh, as well. And I, I don't actually think this is part of the story, Pete, but the, the famous Long Sommer German battery is in this area as well, isn't it? Which is really an essential site on the uh, on the battlefield. Yeah, because we can't really walk from this location to where the commandos are heading, where we would drive there or, or, or cycle there if you hired a push bike. Um, but there's two two locations which are absolute must see if you're going to come to the Normandy beaches. Then uh, Longusmer, uh, the German battery. But before that, you have uh, Aramanche, and Aramanche is where all the museums are and where you get your your lunch and your chips and, and anything else. So these are absolute must see uh, locations. Um, Aramanche uh, is the first place on our. So this is on the right, and this is where the commander is going on the right. They're going further inland. These are both on the coast. Uh, Longer Sumer, a German battery, that is the one that is going to cause some of the damage. I may have been the one that hit the landing craft that was hit, uh, hit by a direct shell and, uh, and sunk immediately. Um, that battery will not be taken out by bombing. It, it, it was attempted to bomb it. They took out three of the uh, three of the uh, the guns. There are four guns there, and uh, but one of them continued firing for most of the day, and in fact will not be taken until the the following day. Uh, so well worth all of those guns are still there in their in their casements, in their concrete shelters, and ju- just again we could do a podcast on that. Just to to say for those that have seen or are going to look at the longest day, very very famous bit where the German is in the mist looking out uh, towards uh, the see um and uh, as the mist parts he then sees all of the ships coming toward him i can't remember what he says now it's something like got in himmel or something but uh, along those lines of uh, good grief um and the, he can see all of all of the uh, the landing but the landing craft and everything coming towards him so it's and that was filmed in this uh, in this observation uh, bunker which is part of this battery complex so well worth going to have a look at well it's such a fascinating area. There's so much to see in this area. That's my experience of being in Normandy. There's just so much to see. Um, how do we keep on track here, Pete? Where are we, where are we going to head next? Because we could be distracted left, right and centre as, uh, as we tour this part of the coastline. Well, I think part of what you need to do now is to really is almost uh, to take off your battlefield touring hat and just to enjoy the countryside because we're going to uh, we'll be driving and zigzagging and trying to follow the way that Four uh, Seven Commando is heading. Um, this is going to be a, a, a fair old uh, eighteen kilometer march, and remember that they're all the way they're picking up kit. A, a lot of it German, I have to say. They're picking up their uh, their captured weaponry to replace what uh, what they've lost. They're trying to get a 
radio that works, and so all of this is being gathered up. They're picking up um, uh, vehicles that are going to support them as well. About 18 kilometres, quietly, on a, effectively a summer's day, crossing, uh, crossing the countryside. So what type of countryside is it? Well, we've got... Um, we're on the edge of the bocage and the bocage is fields that have high walls and the hedges on the top of them so it's a it's stone built uh, uh walls around uh, fields it's little uh, paved country roads a little bit of cobblestone but quite often these are actually tarmacked roads small beautiful little villages stone built villages uh, orchards this is famous this area for growing uh, apples and pears um the only thing that really would spoil it there are dead cows everywhere. And so many soldiers remember who fought through this uh, area, remember the dead cows in, in the fields because, of course, they've been killed accidentally. Uh, the, the fire obviously sweeping across the field. So we, we get uh, dead cows. The other thing that's interesting is the intermingling of units here, German and, and British, because the Germans are not quite sure where we are. Remember, they're crossing the, the countryside here, so they're constantly bumping into uh, into German units who sometimes fight it out, sometimes stick their hands up straight away, and everybody kind of looks, looks surprised um, because there is this intermingling of not, nobody knows quite where anybody is. Have they got off the beaches? Have, have they got behind us? And, of course, every time that they bump into German units, 4-7 uh, commander has to take them out, take them prisoner, kill them, and hope that nobody uh, uh, is passing back any kind of information as to where they're heading. Um, and so it's, it's all very successful, really, this, this uh, part. The CO catches up, having, having uh, managed to, uh, to get ashore. He was late getting ashore. He was wasn't killed he he manages to get ashore and catch up to them uh, and on the on they go and where they're heading for they're heading for a place known as point 72 uh, known as mont uh, cavalier uh, near a place called escure and escure you'll be able to find on the on the map if, you, if you're looking and point 72 as a name will apply is a a, a high point and it is basically directly behind behind port in Bassan looking down into the into the village, uh, and this is where they're going to harbour for the night. They're going to dig in. They didn't know whether they would have to take it. There was a, a thought that the Germans may have been already holding it because it was a sensible place. And when they got there, they discovered that the Germans had been digging in there, but there were no Germans there, or so they thought. In fact, what they found is a German medical post with a a, a doctor and two wounded Germans. And of course, they they capture it and they carry on using it as their medical post as well. So that and that's very common. And um, and that's when they they harbour. They get about two hours sleep um, or dozing because they're they're interchanging. They're setting sentries uh, up before they're going to head into the into the town itself. Um, I often wonder what it would have been like. Would you have slept for two hours? I don't think I'd have been. I think I'd been cleaning my gun and, and sorting my equipment out. But I think it's amazing. These are young men who actually are used to uh, to a hard life. They've been training, as I say, for 18 months. And I think a lot of them would have got a couple of hours sleep um, before they, they went into action the following day. That was my initial thought, Pete, when you were describing this to me, what it would be like there, dug in the ground, having just been through everything they've been through that day, wet and cold, you know, noting the Germans, they're behind German lines, noting that the Germans could uh, could arrive at any moment. It must have been, uh, that, I mean, we talk about the longest day, that must have also been the longest night. I think I think for most soldiers who have been trained in, in this, uh, and and perhaps not so much for commandos, but when you're used to everything being disciplined and in order and, and, and knowing where everything is, to suddenly find that everything is not where it's supposed to be and you can't find him and you can't find that person and that person's disappeared, then I think it's, 
I think it immediately uh, uh, causes uh, causes uh, problems. Basically, there were three hundred of them. This is uh, this commando unit is now down to three hundred men uh, starting on the on the beach. This is how they when they got onto the beach. They had twenty eight uh, killed and twenty um, uh, one uh, wounded and twenty seven missing, probably drowned. Um, and uh, so they're already lost quite a lot of men. So down to three hundred men uh, as they prepare to assault the town. And then you have to start thinking about: Is every single one of these men going to be assaulting the town? And no, they're not. These guys uh, are going to be holding this hill. This is going to be their their, their fallback position. Um, they're going to be uh, obviously holding the route down into the town to make sure that that is open. So if they need to withdraw, that they they can. And then they're going to break down into troops. They're in troops. Uh, a Royal Marine commando is broken down into uh, into troops, and and those troops are going to be allocated with various aspects. The most important aspects are these two cliffs at each side. So these two cliffs at each side, where the guns are that would stop ships from coming in and can fire down into the town as well. Those are the ones that need to be assaulted, and it's going to be basically what they're hoping is that they will get down through the town, and uh, they w- it won't be a dawn assault because they're going to be moving into the dawn into the town. But they're hoping that by midday that they're they're ready, and they will be supported by um, fire from the sea. So there's lots of these Allied ships. Uh, there's the French ships, there are Canadian ships, there are American ships, there are British ships. Um, all all uh, that, that are capable of hitting targets. One of the big issues they have here is. You have to identify a target and you have to be able to tell that ship where it is and what you want to shoot. And they still have a problem with the radios um, or a radio. And in fact, haven't got a, a, a foo, a forward observation officer. He may be naval. He may be artillery. In this case, he's going to be an artilleryman um, who can communicate with the ships with his radio and then uh, identify the targets. Now, that's not going to happen until until the afternoon. And so that's going to cause a problem uh, as well. Well, tell us about the main attack on Porto Besson in the morning, Pete. Right, so what we're going to do, because uh, the best way to, to get the view of that attack is to actually walk right the way through the town ourselves. So we're going to walk through the town. There are several memorials to the commander within the town, one on the roundabout as you enter the town. And we're going to head down to the docks. We're going to walk uh, along the docks. And there's a lock gates uh, very close to the uh, to the sea walls at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the town where the town peters out. And then we get the beach and the sea walls and then uh, the harbour area. Um, and we're going to cross over the lock gates and, so, and then we're going to turn around. So we've got our backs to the sea and we're looking back in towards the town. And from that, you get a good view up both sides, the uh, the cliffs on the left and the right. And you can imagine the men slowly working their way through the uh, through the towns. So on they come, um, down, down coming through. Um, and one of the first things that they need to take is a defensive position that's actually at the front of the town, supporting the, the town. And that was really one that was facing outwards. So that is the only one that's, that's he's actually facing uh, them. The others are going to be facing out to sea, but that doesn't mean that they're not capable of swinging their guns round to uh, inland to, to fire at the commandos that they're going to be working with through the town. So they work their way through the town. They take that position very, uh, very quickly and, uh, and start... Uh, uh, working their, their way uh, into the centre of the town, and then they decide which uh, feature are they going to attack first, and it's the western feature. So if we're looking from them attacking, the western feature is the feature on the uh, left-hand side. So that is going to be the first feature that's going to be uh, assaulted, and they allocate a troop to uh, assault that uh, that feature. So this is now in, into the afternoon. Um, it's a zigzag trackway that leads up to these and they're also getting help. I hasten to add, and I really want to stress this now, the local population here came out to assist uh, in fairly good numbers. 
and we have a gendarme who's been guiding the commandos into position. So a, a gendarme, a policeman, a French policeman, um, so he'd be a local gendarme, and he has been pointing out German positions and guiding the men into place until he's wounded in the face. But he he uh, will be awarded the Croix de Guerre for his efforts on that on that day. There are also other Frenchmen, presumably part of the resistance, of just guys that felt it was necessary to come out and show that they could aid, who are pointing out positions. So the French are very much involved. Also, people ushering people into rooms. As some units got, or some individual men got cut off in the town, surrounded by Germans, they were hidden in uh, in houses until the Germans passed and then out again. So uh, the townspeople very much uh, were aiding uh, the commandos as they fought their way through the town. So... Um, a troop trying to get up this ridge and then they hit the big problem. In the harbour there are two flak vessels. A flak vessel is an anti-aircraft vessel. Um, it has a, a, a series of arm, armaments uh, but perhaps the most uh, chilling for the commandos is a four-barreled 20mm flak uh, cannon which is mounted on these boats. Now these they didn't know were there because they arrived literally on the day before the landings on the 5th of June these things had arrived in the, in the harbour, two of them, and they'd tucked into the sides of the harbour. Now, they could see the commandos climbing up the cliffs, and so they swung their anti-aircraft guns inland and hit the uh, the commandos in the side as they're trying to uh, assault these, uh, these positions uh, on the uh, western feature. So... Uh, Terrible uh, uh, casualties, uh, 12 men immediately killed and 17 uh, men wounded. So that's half of a troop. That's half the troop taken out in that fire. They withdraw back down and, and lick their wounds. There is no way they can get up there while these flagships are there. So another troop uh, is then allocated to try and take out the flak uh, vessels and also fire from ships at sea was uh, was coming into them. But because these vessels are very low, they're they're almost like barges, very, very low to the, uh, to the ground. They're tucked in behind the seawalls and they're very, very difficult uh, to uh, to hit. And in fact, talking about all of the different uh, nationalities, one of the vessels opening fire on these is a Polish naval vessel called Krakow... Oh dear, I wish I hadn't said this now. Krakowiak. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it. It probably isn't, but that's what it looks like. Nice, nicely done, mate. Good enough for us. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and that uh, and that vessel opens uh, uh, opens fire, but but cannot take them out. And in fact, what they decide to do these naval vessels, they launch little boats and send in their own effective commandos to take out the uh, the, the flak vessels, which are, are are taken out successfully. In fact, when they get there, um, I suppose they realise the Germans have already abandoned abandoned them. But the damage has been done to the uh, assault troops of Four Seven Commando of uh, A Troop. They they have now been forced to withdraw. At the same time they get the terrible news uh, that their uh, rear area, their uh, harbour position um, at point 72 has also been overrun. Uh, the headquarters elements there try to uh, fight off the Germans, but there's too many of them and uh, they overrun uh, that. So we start to see, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, how things can go wrong very quickly. And, and suddenly something that looked like it was going quite smoothly is now on the, on the balance. And so this is where you need that grit. You need that grit and that esprit de corps that is going to uh, is going to turn this around. Pete, what I love about this story, and it's what I love about studying history in general and the battlefields in general, is uh, when we talk about these great attacks, these great battles, we talk about thousands and thousands of men in big groups of men, and we we talk about you know we refer to them as units and divisions and brigades, but for the blokes actually taking part. Their war is everything going on immediately in front of them. I mean, it's often said that a soldier's war is six feet in front of him. And 
that story about the flak ships firing on the troop as, as they as they scrambled up the cliffs. I'm just imagining for men who had not seen any other action, for men who were, were perhaps wounded in that action, that was their whole war. And that moment when those flak ships opened up with considerably large cannons on them just would have been a horrific moment. For, for the men involved in that action, that small little window, that could have been in their entire war. And uh, just a, just horrifying scenes. I was going to bring this in at the end of the uh, the end of the uh, the podcast, but it's well worth it. it needs to be brought in now. I- I've met uh, quite a few of these guys. Um, I try and uh, or have in the past try and uh, make the effort to get to Port Embassan uh, on the uh, the anniversary of the attack. And there's always a little group of old guys and their and their families normally with them nowadays, um, wearing their green berets and their blazers uh, uh, around the bars and uh, on the quaysides there. And these are the veterans of of Four Seven Commander. And I had the, the, the lovely experience of getting to chat to uh, one of the chaps and getting to know him so well that he actually came to stay with me um, uh, here in, in Flair. And I just found his talking about the action just so amazing, really. he, he You have to remember, these guys are, are, are new to this business, 18 months of training, that's when they get together. These guys are, are bonded into a, a little tight-knit groups of men that would do anything to help each other. And he was in a landing craft that was that was hit by a shell, and um, it landed slap bang in the middle of the landing craft. And him and the coxswain were the only people that survived. And he swam into the beach, and uh, was re-kitted out and, and continued on. And he just said that to me in that in that way. And I thought, God, you have to think about it. And that that means that he lost all of his mates in before they even got to the beach. Every man he trained with and worked with and and got to know and drank with and laughed with were gone in one split second before he even got to the beach. And yet he, he carried on, and he's one of, in one of the assaults, assaulting groups uh, uh, taking these, these cliffs. Uh, I just found that absolutely uh, uh, amazing that he was, he was able to carry on, and I think it shows the grit of, of, uh, on the way that these guys were trained uh, as commandos to not exactly accept, but to continue on to do their, their tasks, uh, even uh, uh, in, in having faced those terrible experiences. Just extraordinary stuff, and it shows the value of of speaking to veterans. Unfortunately, there's not that many left to speak to these days, but it just shows the value of of, of that oral history and speaking to veterans. We, we shouldn't look at it. I mean, we've talked, we've done a lot of podcasts with someone like Peter Hart, who has interviewed thousands of veterans over the years. But we shouldn't we shouldn't look at oral history as a way to learn more about the historic record. We look at oral history exactly for that that uh, that story you've just described, Pete. What fills in those gaps. It gives us an insight into what was going on for every individual man there, and it's just it's just extraordinary stuff. I'm I'm very jealous that you had that uh, that opportunity. How wonderful to speak to those veterans! Uh, it, it, it's great, and sadly, I don't think there's no organised. Uh, they used to organise a, a trip there. I think you'll get the odd one or two who are determined to go no matter what. Uh, but uh, there's no longer uh, organised visits uh, by by them with the men themselves. I'm I'm absolutely certain that the friends and families of Four Seven Commando will still go there on the uh, on the anniversary dates, but no longer will we see the green berries of the of the original uh, men that that fought there. Um, so I feel very honoured that I that I was able to uh, to, to meet them over the, the past eight years uh, when I when I normally regularly try to to get to uh, to get to the anniversary. Um, so onwards with with what's going to happen next. So um, Captain Cousins, who's actually he led the attack on the uh, the, fa- the the attack that failed on the western feature, is now going to rally men. He actually crosses over and he's going to lead the attack on the eastern feature. It gives you a little bit of an idea of how gung ho he was and how keen he was that this should. Be 
be a, a successful assault. The flagships have now been taken out. So this is the start of where it starts to t- turn around. Um, he leads uh, an assault of 25 men, literally firing from the, the hip. Again, they've been guided into the zigz- these little zigzag tracks that took them up the cliffs, got very close to a concrete position, and then they, they charged it. Um, unfortunately, uh, the Germans uh, saw them coming through grenades, and uh, one of the first to fall was Captain Cousins, and, uh, and he, was, he was killed. But these men, who are, who are nearly all wounded, continue on the 25 men, and they take the blockhouse, and then they start move, moving up, and more men join them, and uh, and you can you can feel it changing. There are a lot of Germans here who who were quite happy to fight to the end, but it's very difficult when people kind of start giving waving little white hankies and holding their hands up. And what do you do? Because if you carry on fighting, you're going to almost certainly get all of those guys that are surrendering uh, killed. So slowly but surely, it's like one of those things that happens: one person surrenders, then another one, another one, and the, and more and more guys started uh, started to to uh, hold their their hands up. Uh, Captain uh, Cousins, just as a, as a matter of interest, was recommended for the Victoria Cross. One of the sadder aspects of the Victoria Cross is it is one of only two awards that you can get uh, if you're killed during the act. One is a mention in dispatches and the other is the Victoria Cross. And sadly, it was deemed by those that uh, do these, uh, that that make these decisions, that the Victoria Cross uh, would not be awarded to him. And because of that, he doesn't get anything. Um, So he's he's given given nothing. And there are an awful lot of people that felt that he should have been awarded the Victoria Cross uh, for his his bravery during, uh, during the day. Um, that position is, is lost. And what I also add now, if we are following in their footsteps, which of course we are, so we've walked up this uh, this zigzag track, which you still can, uh, you can still see the German pillboxes. And if you go beyond them to, uh, and you realise how how extensive this position was, we have Tobruk's, which are mortar positions. We have German, and they're still visible, uh, some concreted, some not. We have zigzagging trenches, you can see going everywhere. And these are all, you can walk up and down them. You're on the top of the cliff, so you don't have to be careful. But it's, it's a lot there so if you are interested in those kind of relics of uh, of warfare and literally walking in their footsteps then this is another of those places it's a, a great place to go to uh, to go and, uh, go and have a look just extraordinary pete and i think it goes without saying that seeing those tangible items left over trenches and pillbox and things that's what makes a visit to the battlefield so, so amazing that's why it's important to get out and walk the ground and um yeah just extraordinary connections with the history it is, and there's nothing better. We've we've talked about it before to actually to stand there, and it's why a lot of people explore the battlefields is because uh, that tangible evidence of seeing something that's left. Uh, here, there's been an effort to preserve it, so the actual things like the Tobruks, which are concreted, you can fall down the holes if you didn't know they were there. They've got metal grills on the top to stop you from uh, from falling down and hurting yourself. So, it, what's nice, it means that that uh, that the local community is ensuring that these things w- will survive, um, which I think is 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 worthy. You'll know why is because it it generates quite a lot of. Uh, I mean, I, I've been there lots of times, and it's always fairly busy. And yes, there are people coming. It's a beautiful little place, but there are an awful lot of people who come there to see the Normandy defences, to to have a look at what went on uh, during the the Normandy landings um, in nineteen forty four. So it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it brings in an awful lot of revenue for the local people, which I think is uh, is great because it is a, a very small little port. The fishing industry is nearly gone. Um, in fact, it, there are still fishing boats operating from there so for those that even uh, if you uh, had a, a member of the family that's very keen on on the on the military aspects then it's you can still go to a place like this because there's an awful lot to keep you occupied it's a, a beautiful little uh, little place I, I love going there 
So back to the the, the story, uh, uh, what's going on. So this has now been taken. The, the soldiers on the other side, the German soldiers on the other side, on the eastern side, can now see uh, that this has been taken. And they start to also surrender. They realise that the, the game's up. Uh, there's uh, no point in continuing if the commandos are now behind them. And of course, they don't know how many men there are, how many, what's been going on behind them. Um, and so they, uh, they, they start to, to surrender as well. So the commandos have got to get through this night. So they they find houses to sleep in, and in fact, there's a there's an awful lot has been written about this uh, action over the years. And something I was literally reading tonight is that one of the billets that the men moved into was the apparently the town brothel, and they discovered that there were an awful lot of beds in this building, which was ideal. And so they put sentries on the doors and uh, and had a good night's sleep uh, in the the comfy beds of the of the local brothel. Um. I should just mention something. There's an extraordinary thing happened in the middle of this battle. A, a vehicle turned up. The commandos were running short of ammunition. And a, a couple of vehicles had made it all the way from uh, the, the British landing beaches. And remember, we're now in this area in between the British and the American. And brought new, uh, ammunition. Um, and supplied uh, the commandos with ammunition just exactly as they needed. So, that again, that was one of those things that, that happened that was very lucky. The other thing that was going on, and I haven't mentioned this, is that rocket-firing typhoons had whistled in as well and had, uh, had aided them. That was uh, something that had been planned and it worked perfectly well. So again, we're back to this this uh, planning. Gunfire from the ships at sea, uh, aircraft attacking specific targets, both brought in by a man with a radio eventually who, who uh, managed to uh, to get there and, org- and organise it. So we've got lots of things happening at, at, the, uh, at the same time. And so on the morning of the 8th, uh, the Americans get there. Of course, they've had that absolutely, I'm sure it's going to be a podcast for the future, that appalling time on the beaches at Omaha. Interestingly, just a, something I should uh, I should have said earlier, that the Germans uh, defending Port Embassan are the same units that were defending uh, Omaha Beach. So these are not uh, guys that were going to hold their hands up easily. These are hardened uh, uh, veterans uh, who were holding the, uh, the area around Port Embassan. So the Americans arrived the following morning and there's a very comical comment uh, that was from one of the commandos. He he shouted out, are, are you Americans? And the uh, the American soldier shouted back, no, hell, we're Texans. Um, uh, so they, they arrived and, uh, and that's the linking. That's the first linking of American troops and British uh, troops uh, during the Normandy uh, landings. Um a little bit more about 4-7 Commander, just interesting from their history. At the end of the Second World War, they're, uh, they're disbanded, but they exist again uh, now. They were 4-7 Commander, was reformed in the October of 2001, and then renamed in November of 2019, so not that long ago. And they're now known as 4-7 Commander Raiding Group Royal Marines. So they are a unit that uh, that exists today. Uh, didn't in my time. Uh, I served in 4-2 Commander, and 4-7 uh, Commander did not uh, exist uh, during that uh, that period, so it's nice to see that the name has uh, has been renewed. As far as memorials are concerned, there are memorials uh, all over the town. You have to look carefully. On each of these ridges at each side, the uh, eastern and the western, there is a, a memorial, uh, and I think it's uh, a well-placed memorial to uh, Captain Cousins, who was uh, who was killed on that assault. Uh, and then on the other uh, ridge, uh, the other cliff, there's a memorial to 4-7 Commander. We also have a, a general memorial in the centre of the town by the, uh, the quay, the docks. Um, and then, of course, there's one of the very... Common. That's not a good term. Um, right the way along the landing beaches, we have these uh, these 
these memorials that are just about the landings, basically. And there's one of those. Um, it's the, uh, if I remember rightly, it's like the Cross of Lorraine, um, and uh, and that is uh, on the on the uh, the harbour, the harbour entrance, commemorating the overall landings. And then the final memorial commemorating the Pluto pipeline. Now I didn't mention what that was called. I don't think I did anyway. That Pluto, that pipeline uh, bringing the petrol in. I have to say, uh, it wasn't until a few years ago that I realised that it actually meant something. I thought it was just a, a name, a, a code name, but it, it doesn't. It's uh, um, it means a pipeline under uh, the ocean. <laughs> I have to think about it then. Pipeline under the ocean uh, is what Pluto stands like uh, stands for, and that's uh, where the petrol was pumped in. Well, Pete, what a remarkable story! A remarkable little town. It's it's what I love so much about Normandy is that everyone that goes, I mean, a huge percentage of people that go to Normandy do it as a day trip from Paris and will just visit Omaha Beach and the American Cemetery. The people that are a bit more dedicated will spend several days there and see all these sites. But I think that the walk we've done today demonstrates you could spend weeks in Normandy and not see all of the features. I just love the idea of going to these less well-known places where just these incredibly heroic actions have occurred. It's it's something that we're starting to do, I think, really well here on this podcast, Peter, is we're discovering these extra little stories. We're walking the Somme and talking about little towns that most people don't know. We're, we're visiting little corners of the Eep salient. We're going to go to some obscure battlefields around the world in upcoming issues, upcoming editions of the podcast. But this one on D-Day, we're finding these little bits of the history that, that most people who go on a bus tour or old ice tour just aren't going to see. I think it's I think it's necessary because uh, you'll know and I know that when we're uh, we're guiding on uh, tour groups, we just don't have the time to do to do these. You you really need to if you can to get back or to book a very specific tour to cover these li- little nuances. I mean, very often I get a day to do the whole of the Normandy landings. I just whistle down the the coastline saying that's that that's that that's that that's that. We go we normally have lunch at, because it's my favourite spot but, uh, here at Port and Bassam, uh, and then we carry on again. Um, and so it's. It's great to to be able to spend that time to actually to actually walk these sites. I have to say, the final uh, comment: if you're going to to walk this, then you really need to see where the the men that died here are buried, um, and all the Marines that died, and in fact all the all, all of the the British soldiers that died. Um, uh, uh, Commonwealth soldiers. There are obviously other the, the Canadians. Well, they're all uh, the bulk of them are buried in uh, Bayer uh, in the the cemetery there. And so all of the Marines that died here are, are at Bayer, where the tapestry is, the famous Bayer tapestry. And um, so another reason to go there. You can go and have a look at the tapestry uh, as well as uh, visiting the men that died in the in the landings. It's a beautiful cemetery, one of my favourites, and uh, quite remarkably different to the American cemetery. When you go to the the American cemetery, is in, incredible in its own right, but uh, I, I do love the understated nature of the British cemetery, where everyone's just just buried. They've got comments from the family. It feels a lot more, um, uh, a bit more of a celebration of the individual than the the grandeur of the American cemetery. Bayer Cemetery is a really lovely place, and so absolutely, if you go and do this walk, make sure you go there and pay your respects. Not just to the men from uh, Four Seven Commando, but uh, but all the British and Commonwealth men who were killed during D Day, and some. And we should say the contribution of the Brits and the Commonwealth forces is sometimes a little bit overshadowed uh, by the uh, the American involvement in D Day. So a wonderful walk, just to remember um, the the British and Commonwealth soldiers, and, and definitely go to that cemetery as well. Well, we'll be back to to cover other areas, and one of the things I, I want to go to myself, so I need to go for a, a, a walk myself, is the new memorial that's being created to commemorate uh, British effort on the beaches. Oddly, we, there, there was no British memorial uh, on the landing beaches, and one uh, it's not not finished yet, uh, but it's uh, it's been built, and it's going to list all of those that were killed uh, in, in, during the landings. 
Well, Pete, it's just been a fascinating walk. Thank you again. Uh, you know, just uh, as I said, one of these ones, uh, I won't use the term obscure, but just less well-known, just uh, just uh, exploring chapters of history that people might not be aware of. I should say a couple of things at this point. Um, on my YouTube channel, on Living History TV on YouTube, I did a, a, a video a couple of years ago now about how to visit the Normandy beaches. So go and check that one out because it's a good overview of how you get to Normandy, where you can stay and how you can get around and see these sites. Um, but also when we're allowed to travel again, when we're allowed to head back to France uh, through Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours, we have an extensive portfolio of Normandy tours. Short little ones you can do from Paris and more extensive ones you can do. Pete Smith himself leads some of them. So if you do want to get over there, when we are allowed to travel again, there's a whole range of great tours that you can find through our website, which is battlefields.com.au. Normandy is a wonderful place. I can't wait to get back over there myself. Pete, I can't wait to uh, to catch up for a beer, to walk the ground with you and uh, and see these sites firsthand. It's, it's just been remarkable, mate. So thank you so much for your compassion and your insights into these remarkable places. Oh, it's a pleasure, Matt. Look forward to, uh, to taking you there and uh, having a, a wander among the, uh, the slit trenches. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.